Good morning, everyone. I want to turn this down. I want to draw your attention this morning to um, the book of Job, obviously, and um, I'm so grateful that this PowerPoint is working this morning. As I was getting ready to come to church, it decided to do a massive uh, update, and I didn't know what to do and did the wrong thing, and, and, uh, but just now it came, up, it came up, so thank you, Lord. So if you have your Bibles, you might want to turn to uh, the book of Job. Last week, Jim um, took us through Colossians, uh, chapter by chapter, word by word. I thought we might do the same with Job this morning. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> I'll give a summary of the book of Job. Um, as you can see, it's part of the wisdom literature. Uh, generally, it uh, consists of the book of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. The uh, Hebrew wisdom literature was centered on God, and it was very practical, concerned with skillful living, and, and uh, more broadly in the ancient world, it was concerned with how to discipline oneself for the trials of life. The name Job means persecuted one or repentant one, depending on whether it's derived from Hebrew or Aramaic, and uh, scholars are divided on that. But the theme is very clear. The theme is, uh, why do the righteous suffer if God is all-loving and all-powerful? And God's answer at the end of this book seems to be to overwhelm Job with his sovereignty until Job repents of demanding that God answer to him and reaffirms that God is Lord and sovereign king. So here's the story. Um, Job is a prosperous farmer who lived in the land of Uz. He has thousands of sheep, camels, and livestock. He's blessed with a large family and servants. And suddenly Satan, the accuser, comes before God, claiming that the only reason Job is faithful and trusts God is because of his wealth and everything going so well for him. God allows Satan to destroy Job's children, servants, livestock, herdsmen, and home, and yet Job continues to trust and worship God. So next, Satan attacks Job's body, covering him with boils. Job's wife tells him to curse God and die, but Job just suffers in silence. Then three of Job's friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, come to visit him. At first, they sit in silence with him and grieve his suffering, but then they started telling Job what? that his suffering was because of his sin. Surely he had sinned to bring such suffering upon himself. They tell him to confess and repent. To this, Job maintains his innocence until a younger man, Elihu, asks to speak. 
and claims that God can use suffering to purify the righteous. Finally, God speaks out in a whirlwind. And God rebukes Job's three friends, but interestingly, he doesn't rebuke Elihu. Job retracts his claim that God is being unjust and repents. And in the end, Job is restored to happiness and wealth. Job has three basic complaints over which he wants a hearing before God. The first is that God doesn't hear me. The second is God is punishing me unfairly. And number three, God allows the wicked to prosper. Now let me ask you a perhaps self-revealing question. How many of you have wrestled with any one of these three complaints at some point in your life when you've been under trial? I think probably most, if not all of us, have had these same three complaints. In the counseling field, there's a um, depression inventory called the Beck Depression Inventory. And one of the questions on that inventory is to rate to what extent you feel you are being punished. And it's amazing to me that almost invariably the person who um, is being screened for depression marks a very high mark when it comes to this question of to what degree are you feeling punished. I want to lift out seven lessons from Job uh, for your thoughtfulness this morning. And the first one is this, that suffering is not always related to sin. Suffering is not always related to the sin of the sufferer. The ancient notion was that suffering was always related to the sin of the sufferer. And conversely, if a person was prosperous, it was the result of that person's righteousness and uh, God's blessing. And yet the Bible simply teaches that these notions are too simplistic, doesn't it? It doesn't always apply. Suffering is not always the result of sin, though often it is. And prosperity is not always a sign of the person's righteousness, though that can be true as well as God blesses. Let's first look at suffering for a minute. And how do we know the Bible um, wants to dispel that notion that suffering is always related to sin? Well, first, we could cite the rebuke of Job's three friends. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to chapter 42, starting in verse 7. This is after God has spoken to Job, and Job has repented. And in 42, verse 7, it says, And it came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job will pray for you for I will not accept him excuse me for I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly because again you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has so since their message was that suffering is always related to sin, you must surely have sinned to uh, reap, be reaping all this suffering. 
and then God rebuking that line of thinking, we see that the scriptures are trying to um, dispel that notion. It's even clearer in John 9, chapter one, uh, verses 1 through 3, where Jesus is talking about a man born blind. Listen to this. And as he passed by, he, Jesus, saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. I'm not saying that every person who suffers is not guilty of sin, obviously not. But the Bible is saying these notions are too simplistic and we need to discern. You see, it's teaching that suffering is not always related to sin. Well, how about prosperity? You know, when you read about prosperity in the Bible, usually it's a godly person complaining to God that the wicked are the prosperous ones. Have you ever noticed that? For example, David in Psalm 73 uh, describes it very well. He says, as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, for I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death. Their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. So even though God does bless us as we follow him and pursue him, it's not so simple to use wealth as a measuring stick of righteousness, is it? Is it? Thank you. So how, how are these simplistic beliefs um, played out today? Um, I, I was able to just think of six. See what you think of these. There are those who still think that anyone who lives a godly life will not suffer. Right? Here's another one. All mental illness is spiritual and the result of the sin of the sufferer. You know, if, a, if our hearts are sick, no problem going to a doctor. If our arm is broken, no problem. But if our brain is sick, our brain is an organ like any other organ in the body, it often looks like it can look demonic, it can look um, very scary, and yet there is such a thing as legitimate mental illness that is not spiritual. Physical death, here's a third one. Physical death is the result of a lack of faith. We've all run into that, um, where people believe that the person died because they didn't have enough faith. Here's one. Righteous parents cannot possibly have prodigal children. We, honestly, we, 
I hear that sometimes. We hear that. That, uh, you know, it's, it's the thinking that the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. And yet that's not always the case. That's not always true. Here's another one. Since I'm under this adversity, I must certainly be being punished for my sin. Um, not all adversity is related to your sin. Here's one that is, is um, related to wealth or prosperity. Since that brother is more materially prosperous than I am, he must be more righteous than me. I hope you don't fall into that. Because remember, God looks at the heart, doesn't he? He looks at the heart, not at the outward appearances. So indeed, one of the purposes of Job is that God's ways are higher than our ways. Isaiah uh, 55, 8 and 9 says that. In fact, I want to turn to that just because it says it so well. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And then in Isaiah 40, verse 28, the adjective that is used to describe God is the word inscrutable that the Lord's ways are inscrutable. And it's interesting, we'll see later, that when Job repents, he uses a word like it, but very unlike it at the same time. He says, Lord, I am insignificant. So the Lord is inscrutable, and Job says, Lord, I am insignificant. We must stay humble and be mature in our thinking. So the first lesson is suffering is not always related to sin. The second one is this. Beware of the counsel of those closest to you. You know, our assumption is, is that the people who know us best are going to give us the best counseling, the best counsel. Don't we presume that? And often they do. They often do. But we can't just uh, blanketly assume that. You might... Remember Job's wife, what she said to him after the boils hit his body. What did she say? Curse God and die. In fact, she said, why do you hang on to your integrity? Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. What a peach of a woman. <laughs> What a peach. She may have been a great lady, but, you know, we, we, this is part of the problem is that when we love someone, we can't stand to see them suffer. And so we often, we often pamper them or give them, you know, we just want the suffering to end. We just want relief. And this was the case with, uh, or I guess was not the case with Job's friends. Um, what I want to point out to you about Job's friends is, first of all, that they were real friends. And how do I know that? Well, think about this, that Job obviously knew other people. We could assume that he had other friends. And yet, these three were the ones who came. 
These three were the ones who walked in after everybody else, perhaps, including Job's wife, had walked out. That's a sign of a true friend, somebody who walks in after everybody else has walked out. They also sat silently with Job for seven days, didn't they? How many of your friends would take that kind of time with you if uh, you were suffering very badly, to come and sit silently with you for seven days? I think that's pretty, pretty powerful. Another thing that we don't think about is that even though they had a hard word for Job and a wrong word for Job, uh, they were direct about it, weren't they? There's no evidence that they went around his back, uh, that they were backstabbing him at all. Uh, they came to him and they gave him the message directly. And another evidence, I think, that they were probably real friends is that they didn't pamper him. They, didn't, they, didn't, they weren't looking for the easy out for Job. And yet, they went to the other side that, um, you know, it's a, I think it's a real gift of God if we have a friend who doesn't pamper us. And yet, uh, sometimes friend can, friends can hammer us. Uh, because uh, they have other issues with us that are going on. You know, they might be mad with us about something else. And so their, their judgment is affected by uh, that underlying resentment or anger or hurt or pride. And then our friends, our close friends, are just like anyone else. They can be well-intentioned, but just flat wrong. And so there's something to be said for objective advice. Beware of the counsel of those closest to you. The third lesson from Job is remember who the real enemy is. Yes, God allows trials and adversity, but who is it that attacks? It's the enemy. God allows, but the enemy attacks. We, we've got to remember who the real enemy is. The devil is the adversary, not God. The devil is the accuser, not God. The devil is the tempter, not God. The devil is the liar, not God. The devil is the thief, not God. And the devil is the murderer, not God. You remember 1 Peter 5, uh, I think it's verse 9, that talks about be sober, and on the alert, for the devil, your adversary, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Scripture even indicates that on occasion, Satan can make a demand upon God. That's a, that's a, that's a strange mystery that I, I have to confess I don't understand. All I know is that it's here. It's in the book of Job. And let's also look together at Luke 22, uh, starting in verse 28. Jesus is about to go to the cross, and he says to the disciples, You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones 
judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So here Jesus has just made an incredible proclamation to his disciples of who they are, and he's given them the kingdom. And then he turns to Peter, and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. This is Luke 22, starting in verse, or we're at, we're at uh, 31. Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I was... Uh, visiting with Steve, Steve Sperber, and Steve asked me about the Lord's Prayer and, and how is it that Jesus would, would teach his disciples to pray, uh, lead us not into temptation. Because we know from the book of James that, that God doesn't tempt anyone. So why would Jesus uh, use that phrase, Lord, lead us not into temptation? Um, and um, so I did some research on that, on what that phrase means. And basically what it means is it, it's a prayer that when we're under trial, that our faith would not fail, that we would not be tested beyond what our faith can endure. And can any of you think of a verse from uh, 1 Corinthians that talks about that? Yeah, let's read it together. This is... Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. You don't need to turn there, but I'll read it to you. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We need to remember who the real enemy is in our fight of faith. The fourth lesson from Job I want to talk about is trusting God in adversity is often accomplished by enlarging our concept of God. Well, God sure enlarged Job's view when he showed up, didn't he? This time, God didn't, didn't come with a still, small voice like in Elijah. It says he came in a whirlwind. So imagine Job is there and there's this tornado going on around him as God speaks to him. And what does God say? Starting in verse uh, chapter 38, verses 1 through 7, God has listened to Job for a long time and it says, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man and I will ask you and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars came together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? 
Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? Verse 12, have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? Verse 16, have you entered into the springs of the sea or have you walked in the recesses of the deep? I love that image of our king and our God just walking on the bottom of the ocean, just walking around, looking at stuff that he's made and smiling. Who has cleft a channel for the flood or a way for the thunderbolt? Verse 31, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Verse 34, can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that an abundance of water may cover you? And it goes on and on. And then in, jo in uh, chapter 40, the Lord ends his first rebuke with this. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer for it. How many of you would like to be in that situation? In essence, God was saying, Job, I am so much bigger than you. And I don't need to answer to you. So Job's view of God was definitely enlarged. I uh, took the liberty to ask a couple of sufferers, co-sufferers in our office area to consider uh, sharing their thoughts with you about their process of having their view of God enlarged as they've undergone suffering. We all know Mary and Terry who lost their oldest son Daniel to suicide after he uh, served his country in Iraq. And so I asked Mary, and uh, this is what she wrote. And this is, of course, with her permission. She says, this morning, I picked up the pocket coin I had mailed to Daniel while he was in Iraq and later found in his belongings. Yet again, I touched the peace dove and the yellow support our troops ribbon embossed on one side, then slowly turned it over, reading the sentence and the promise engraved on the other side, which said, thinking of you while away, for your safe return I pray. What a simple thing, what simple words, but the words, for your safe return I pray, was a promise I fulfilled hundreds if not thousands of times and, had lo and has lost its simplicity. How does a sincere praying Christian gain an enlarged view of God when heart and mind often battle fiercely with the sense that I kept my promise more faithfully than he kept his? What happens when the fearlessness of walking through the valley of the shadow of death morphs into the terror of groping around in the valley, no longer of death's shadow, but of its actual substance? A valley in which lies lifeless, so very ever still, a beloved broken son who is both the murdered and the murderer. My enlarged view of God is one of the God, is, is one of the God I thought I deeply knew, who has become so large that he has moved way beyond the scope and trajectory of my utterly feeble, finite human understanding. 
The face of God into which I now gaze in decisive faith and worship is a blurry one, seen through a glass quite dimmer and less clear than the glass through which I saw him once upon a time, both so long and so yesterday ago. My experience, no, the lifelong road and journey to which I daily awake, catapult me into daily challenges of how then shall I live? Daily choices, daily decisions, daily resolve, daily decisive intentionality at which I often flounder. The enemy lurks present, shouting his onslaughts of taunts and awful doubts. And when I quiet my soul long enough to hear and allow, a certain still small voice is also there. It softly breathed whispers crushing and conquering those shouts of my soul's enemy. Will you be offended in me? Will you too leave me? Do you follow me because you love me or only because I give you bread, your human flesh and mind desire? He says to me, trust me, Mary, with all your heart. Don't burrow into shallow ground of shattered understanding. In all your ways, all your thoughts, feelings, meditations, steps, decisions, responses, enthrone me again and again and again, and then lead hard into me, the rock of your unfolding salvation and your sustenance. I will direct, I am directing your path, your pilgrimage, your life, in and from the depths of my heart. Trust me with Daniel, with his heart, with his destiny, trust me over and over again with him whom you committed to me against that day. Will you trust me? Will you love me? Will you worship me even when and where I dwell so far beyond your vision and your understanding? And then she ends with this, I choose to trust. I choose to love and worship him I choose to believe in the goodness, unfailing love, and mercies of God who has reached way beyond my human understanding. Of any ability to view him apart from faith greater than what in myself I have to offer him. I believe to see his goodness in the land of the living. I thank him that I do not have to strive in my weakness to hold up, but rather can rest in the one who upholds. Thank you, Mary, for that. And then Debbie Manchester also. I also asked Debbie. She's, of course, James has been fighting depression for the last two or three years and uh, difficulty with children. And uh, I just excerpt a couple of paragraphs from what Debbie wrote. She said, perhaps God is best seen from the bottom of the pit, from the depths of this place where we learn to say, Though none go with me, still I will follow. And whom have I in heaven besides thee? And there is none that I desire on earth besides thee. From the bottom of the pit, I have seen that God's willingness to love the wanderer extends far beyond what I thought proper. For those of you with prodigal children or prodigal family members, that's a great line. And I want to read it again. I have seen that God's willingness to love the wanderer extends far beyond 
what I first thought proper. When the pain of rejection and accusations are overshadowed by the awareness of his mercy toward my own failings and sins, his love is then shed abroad in my heart, and I am better able to love as he loves. Then she says this, he is never impotent. He is never nullified. He never loses a battle. The battle belongs to the Lord, and he never loses. I think I'll stop there, but thank you, Debbie, for that as well. Trusting God in adversity often requires that we enlarge our concept of God. Lesson number five is God will often use suffering to purify and strengthen the righteous. We see this over and over in Scripture, don't we? For example, 1 Peter 1 and 2. Excuse me. 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And I want you to remember Elihu. I've lifted him up a couple times already, but he was not rebuked by God for giving Job his message even though he was a younger man and he waited for the wiser, older men to speak. He said he was like Jeremiah. There was this word burning within him, in him that he couldn't, couldn't hold in. And so he talked to Job about perhaps God was uh, uh, purifying Job's faith uh, through Job's suffering. And then there's that beautiful passage in Hebrews 12 that reassures us that the one whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. How many of you love that passage? No, I'm serious. I think we should love that passage, even though discipline is unpleasant. It says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Jumping down to verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. God will often use suffering to purify the righteous and to strengthen us. The sixth lesson is that God is sovereign over all. Again, if you're in Job, let's turn to uh, Job 41 and read a few verses there. 
This is God talking to Job and overwhelming him again with his power and his sovereignty. And he says, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make supplication to you or will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you? Will, he, will you take him for a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you bind him for your maidens? Will the travelers, traders bargain over him? Will they divide him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? If you lay your hand on him, you will remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, your expectation is false, Job. Will you be laid low even at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him. Who then is it that can stand before me? Who has given me that I should repay him? Another version, the NIV says, who, who has delivered a claim against me that I must pay? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Just so that this sense of God's sovereignty can fill us a little, I want a little more. I want to read two more verses. One is from Psalm 50, and the other is from Psalm 115. God says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine and all it contains. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Oh, that we would have a glimpse of the glory and the majesty of God. Well, Job is humbled, of course. He calls himself insignificant. And then in verse, chapter 42, verses 1 through 6, he fully repents. And let me read to you these verses uh, where you hear Job repent. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do all things and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, Lord, and do thou instruct me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see thee. Therefore, I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. What a great model of repentance. God, indeed, is sovereign over all, and his ways are inscrutable. One more lesson from Job, and that is that we must trust him even when we cannot trace him. There are so many verses in Job that are little pearls, and one of those pearls is in chapter 13, verse 15, and it says this, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And before Laura and I were married, we agreed together that we would commit to that verse, that 
even when we didn't know what God was doing, we were going to do our very best to trust him. And um, I remember uh, when we were in St. Paul, living in St. Paul, we were attending a church, uh, an Assembly of God church, where the pastor had uh, been very warm and friendly to us. He was very sweet. And one day he came, while Laura was working, he came to our apartment. I remember I didn't have a shirt on, and, um, and he, was, he was a very traditional Assembly of God pastor, and so I was a little nervous. But he was so warm and friendly, such a sweet man. He, he poured out his heart about how he had grown up in the church and he had uh, determined that he wanted to be a pastor at an early age and he felt the call of God. And so he began to look around for a woman who could play the piano because that's what you did in his faith tradition was if you were going to preach, you needed a woman who could play the piano. And so he found this beautiful woman who could play the piano. He dated her and proposed to her and she accepted and they had been in ministry for a lot of years and then she came down with cancer and she passed away. And I could just hear the, the, the pain in his heart and his, his sense of, God, I, I did every, I played by the rules. I did everything I was supposed to do. He talked about how he and his wife tied faithfully and he talked about how when they had a fight they would just get down on their knees and pray uh, and the fight would go away and you know he just he just went through this um, list of, of of things they did right and yet here he lost his beloved wife and uh, yet I had to in that moment I found myself just admiring this man of God that even though God had not met his expectations, as it were, um, that he was continuing on with God. He was here ministering to me, um, a young man without a shirt on in a, in a pretty rough part of town, and uh, he was doing, he was going to go on with God, even though, even in his confusion and even in his, his reeling over that life event. There was a time when people were leaving Jesus, wasn't there? There was a time when he was talking about, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you'll have no part in me. And, and his listeners were freaking out like, what? Are you insane? I, I can't follow you. And so some of his followers, it's the scriptures say, they started to, to leave and Jesus turned to his his 12, and he said, are you going to leave me also? And you remember what Peter said. Peter said, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And uh, I've always thought of that as, and he goes on to, to make some other statements, but I've always thought of that as a pretty, kind of a triumphant proclamation. But Bill was telling me this week that he read where Malcolm uh, Muggeridge said that this was not a triumphal proclamation, but a statement of loyal despair. I can almost guarantee, brothers and sisters, that there's a situation in your life where you don't know what God is doing or why 
it's taking so long? Why your answer, why he hasn't vindicated, and I want to give you an opportunity to be ministered to this morning. If you are under trial this morning, if you have a need for fortification in your faith, your trial doesn't have to be as significant as Job's. I don't think any of ours would be, but I thought of those of you I know who are fighting with a physical illness that is just very, very debilitating. I thought of some of you I know who are fighting a mental torment. I know of those of you who have prodigal children or unsaved loved ones. Those of you who have employment instability. Those of you who have lost a family member suddenly or recently. And I just want to give the Lord an opportunity to fortify you and to strengthen your faith to enable you to stand and endure. So if you're under a trial right now, an adversity, you don't know what God is doing, um, I just want to invite you to stand. Uh, we are his children and he has blessings for us evermore. I want to invite you to stand without hesitation um, and just let me pray for you as you bear up under various loads. Would you do that? I'm going to give you a minute to stand. I know many of you are facing incredible weights, incredible adversity, trials. You may just want to, no need to do this, but you may just want to reach your hands up, up to God as a sign that you are reaching out to him in faith. And I want to pray, Father, I want to thank you. We thank you for these who are standing. Lord, only you know under what adversity they stand and uh, they are reaching out to you in faith right now. We want to join you, Lord, in praying that their faith, first of all, their faith would not fail. We want to pray, Lord, that these who are standing would trust you now. And as Mary said, over and over and over again, enthrone you as King of kings and Lord of lords and know in whom they have believed and entrusted against that day. Help them bear up, Lord. We pray for their faith that, like as a, a precious jewel, Lord, that it would be refined by fire. As James says, count it all joy when you meet various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let that have its full effect, that you would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, we pray for these, Lord, to find a greater capacity to do spiritual warfare over the doubts and thoughts 
that torment. Father, some of us need to learn more how to do greater spiritual warfare over our souls. And like David, to learn how to strengthen ourselves in God. Father, I pray for those individuals that you would teach them, teach us, Lord, to do greater spiritual warfare over the doubts by fighting according to your word and with the word of God. And then, Father, I thank you that in the midst of all these who are standing and bearing up under various adversities, that like Job, they know their Redeemer lives. They know that they shall see you in the land of the living, that they will see you face to face, that you belong to them and they belong to you, and you are their deliverer, you are their vindicator, you are their strong fortress, you are their refuge, you are their great and mighty God, you are their great counselor. So, Father, I pray that that would well up inside of each heart, Lord, that you are their Redeemer and that you will never leave or forsake them. Now I want to pray James 1.12 over you and also the last couple verses of Jude. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial for, when he is, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised for those who love him. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, and listen to this, with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Thanks, guys. You can be seated. Bill, if you'll close out.